12-day trial occurred in 2019 before an administrative law judge of the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, centering on the question of whether or not the employer who runs a mental health care facility had taken sufficient measures to protect workers from workplace violence exposures. The administrative law judge recently issued his decision arising out of that 12-day trial, a 171-page opinion going through evidentiary disputes and ultimately arriving at a conclusion as to what kinds of abatement measures the judge felt should have been taken uh, as compared to the measures taken by the employer. And we'll discuss those today, May 19th, 2021, on the OSHA 3030 with Manish Raf. Welcome everyone to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. I'm Manish Rath. I'm an attorney here at Keller and Heckman in Washington, DC. I am a, an attorney who practices on behalf of management in the field of occupational safety and health law. And I'm joined today by my colleague, Javane Tartar. Javane, who's been a part of the OSHA 3030 and part of Keller and Heckman for a number of years now, is somebody who practices OSHA law as well as other areas, including TSCA. Uh, and Prop 65 issues, hazard communication issues. Javane, thank you very much for joining the OSHA 3030 today and welcome. Thank you, Manish. I appreciate you having me on today. Well, I appreciate it. And you've picked a great topic. Uh, we've had uh, now, I think, somewhere around 95 episodes and uh, we're probably around our 95th episode of the OSHA 3030. We've been doing this for somewhere around seven or eight years. All of our prior episodes, Javane, as you know, are found on our website, uh, at khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. And for about half that time, we've been reproducing this as a podcast. So we'll record this webinar and then we'll republish it as a podcast. And since uh, middle of last year, we've been doing this as uh, we've been posting it. Uh, we've been doing it by video as well. Uh, and we've been posting it on YouTube. So if you've missed any prior episodes and you want to check it out, easy to do. Just make sure you check it out on YouTube, on your favorite podcast app, or on our website, khlaw.com. So Javane, as I said, we have a great topic today. This is an important topic because workplace violence uh, is a an area of workplace safety and health that is getting greater and greater attention, both at the agency as well as uh, on Capitol Hill. So this decision, I think, is, is uh, instructive to the employer community. So we're going to talk about, well, the number one OSHA issue uh, these days uh, is, is coronavirus uh, management uh, practices in the workplace. And so I think we ought, there's been some interesting developments since the last OSHA 3030. So we're going to take a quick second to talk about those, catch everyone up, and then we'll get into this dis discussion about this case, uh, starting with, with the facts in the case. And then uh, this is a general duty clause uh, alleged violation. And so we'll talk about the general duty clause to make sure everyone understands that because there is no workplace violence standard. And then, uh, then we'll talk about some of the uh, allegations by OSHA that the employer had not taken the right steps to preserve evidence. Uh, as I said, workplace violence is not a specific OSHA standard. So OSHA has been enforcing the concept under the general duty clause, but Congress has visited twice, conducted hearings 
of its own to determine whether or not OSHA should promulgate a specific workplace violence standard, perhaps specific to the healthcare industry to start with. And then finally, as we always do, we'll wrap up with what employers should do. So before we get into this case, Chavane, why don't I really quickly go over some incredibly de uh, important developments in the field of uh, COVID law, I'll call it. Uh, last Thursday, the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, issued a guidance statement stating that those persons who have been fully vaccinated may engage in everyday activities as they did prior to the pandemic, including no longer needing to wear masks in public, indoors, outdoors, and no longer needing to maintain six feet of separation. Uh, there are other elements to this guidance, and I think that the implications are complicated. For one thing, they were very clear that state and local mandates are not overruled. This is a CDC guidance for those who are fully vaccinated. For another, their definition of fully vaccinated is detailed. It requires that for those who take two-stage vaccination, that they've, they've received both dosages, and for those who have taken one-stage vaccination, that they've received that dosage. And then, in both cases, 14 days have transpired because the date of, of vaccination is not the date where the full immunological benefit from those vaccinations uh, has been achieved. Uh, a person who's vaccinated continues to mount a immunological response to the vaccine that continues to increase and improve over the successive 14 days. And so the CDC's opinion is that the term fully vaccinated is defined by those who have received the, the complete set of shots uh, and 14 days since the last one has transpired. Um, another implication is the workplace and, and private places of, uh, of private premises like stores uh, that they, they were clear that private premises, including employers, can set their own rules for entry. And so, so we've been in discussions with employers of all sizes, including multi-state, national, and uh, multi-global, uh, multinational uh, employers with, with operations all over the country, some of them tens of thousands of employees, uh, trying to, to assist in how to revise their policies for those who have been fully vaccinated and how to maintain policies for those who have not. For those of you participating in today's OSHA 3030, if you haven't been had a chance to think about that or consult with OSHA Council, give us a ring. I'm happy to chat with you about that. This is an important moment to redevelop your policies with respect to masking, social distance, uh, breaks for disinfecting, et cetera, even, even uh, workplace uh, work-related travel uh, or use of public conveyances like the local metro system, subway system, buses. Uh, so Yesterday or this morning, uh, pretty recently, within the past few hours, anyways, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, in light of the CDC guidance, put a note on their website uh, stating that OSHA is reviewing the recent CDC guidance and they will update the OSHA will update their materials on the OSHA.gov website accordingly, and stated that until those updates are completed, OSHA directs uh, people who visit their website to refer instead to that CDC guidance from last week for information on appropriate measures to take for fully vaccinated workers. Uh, so more is to come from OSHA. They've made that clear in, in this morning's announcement or last night's announcement on their website. Uh, but that's all they said on the website is, is essentially in the meantime, check with the CDC guidance and we're, we're developing our own interpretation of that for the workplace. So Javane, 
uh, on with the show. <laughs> we we that are was a here. Great update. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's incredibly important. I think yeah. the the implications for the workplace for every single workplace uh, need to be addressed by each employer together with their OSHA council. But we're here today yes. on I think an also incredibly important case relating to workplace violence. And the case is Secretary of Labor versus UHS of Delaware. Yes, yeah, so uh, we'll start with a little bit of background about uh, the healthcare center and uh, the incidents that um, were brought to OSHA's attention. So Suncoast is a behavioral health care center that hosts children and adults and admits over 200 patients per month. So they're very busy. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a subsidiary of Premier Behavioral Health Solutions of Florida, who is owned by UHS. And so UHS of Delaware is the management company for Suncoast. So they're both involved in this matter. Um, and so OSHA uh, received a complaint in uh, 2015 about workplace violence in the facility, and they sent an inspector over to the facility. And um, after the inspection, the OSHA area office issued a hazard alert letter to Suncoast as a result and notified them that employees were exposed to hazards in the workplace. Uh, you know, four employees over the past year were injured and experienced serious fractures caused by interactions with patients. And so OSHA provided recommendations to Suncoast to reduce the hazards and Suncoast's uh, risk management director said that they were doing most of these things and gave OSHA uh, the policies to show that there were processes in place to meet these recommendations. Unfortunately, after the hazard alert letter, uh, there were uh, several other instances of workplace violence. Uh, there were instances of uh, patient on employee aggression and violence, uh, you know, instances like stabbings, um, resulting in employees uh, going to the hospital or taking days away from work. And there was one instance in particular uh, called the RNRO attack, where a, a patient attacked an employee with, with scissors and a pen, and it caused the employee to miss almost 30 days of work um, and have restricted or transferred work for 127 days. So some, some unfortunate incidents. And so after this, OSHA received another complaint um, about the facility uh, of workplace violence and asked for an investigation. So they issued um, a notice of investigation, uh, an NOI in October 2017 to the facility. And as uh, part of this investigation, OSHA requested a number of documents from Suncoast, like uh, injury logs and photographs, but they didn't ask specifically ask for videotapes at this time. Uh, later in the investigation, uh, as the investigation progressed, OSHA did ask for videotapes and Suncoast responded that they would need a written request for them. Um, and so the, the investigation continued and it wasn't until later in about, I think, 2018, when OSHA issued a subpoena to Suncoast for any and all videos of acts of violence by patients against employees between January 2017 to April 2018. And so the, um, the subpoena, uh, they, they, they issued the subpoena because they, they wanted to review these tapes. And as a result, Suncoast took steps to preserve some videos. There were about six videos they preserved, but they did not produce them to OSHA. They also didn't take steps to prevent uh, the destruction of videos or incidents occurring after they received the subpoena. The way their current system is set up is that um, the, the uh, Suncoast explained uh, to the court that their video surveillance system kind of overwrites itself every 30 days. And so um, they didn't take steps to uh, preserve these videos after the subpoena. 
And shortly after the subpoena, OSHA issued a citation against uh, both Suncoast and UHS of Delaware uh, for uh, general duty clause, alleged uh, repeat general duty clause violations uh, for failing to furnish a workplace of employment free from the recognized hazard of workplace violence. So before we go any further, Javne, perhaps it's best to make sure everyone is level set or caught up on the concept of the general duty clause. OSHA has the power under the Occupational Safety and Health Act to promulgate specific standards. And when they promulgate a specific standard, their burden of proof to show a violation uh, is, is a lot more straightforward because much of the work that they would have to establish has been done in the rulemaking process, that there is a standard of care that an employer is expected to meet. That's already been established because there is a specific OSHA standard in, in place. Then the agency need only prove that there was exposure to employees and that there was uh, a condition or practice or circumstance that didn't match the requirements of the standard. Uh, however, if there is a workplace or a safety or health issue that is not specifically required uh, that there doesn't meet a specific requirement under an OSHA standard, OSHA may consider using a different part of the Occupational Safety and Health Act called the General Duty Clause of that act. The General Duty Clause essentially says every employer has a general duty to provide a safe and healthful workplace uh, for every worker. Well, in order to prove a violation of that clause, OSHA has a somewhat higher burden. They have to prove that there was employee exposure to a hazard, that the hazard was recognized either by that employer or by the industry, that the hazard was likely to cause serious harm or fatality, and that there was a known and well-accepted feasible means of abating the hazard. Those four elements OSHA has to establish when pressing a general duty clause violation. Now, in this particular case, workplace violence, there is no specific standard. And OSHA, in a number of cases, including some that we have addressed here on the OSHA 3030, have dealt with uh, uh, the agency's of efforts to, to enforce against uh, what they allege to be uh, substandard uh, practices uh, dealing with exposure to workplace violence using the general duty clause. So, so it's important, I suppose, at first to establish what was the employee exposure in this particular case? What was the recognized hazard? What was the likely harm? And what was the feasible means of abatement? Was there a feasible means of abatement? That last element is, I think, of great importance here because uh, what, what OSHA was able to establish in this case was a large number of incidents of actual violence by patients against staff. There were certainly cases of patients on patient violence, but here we're talking about the workplace. And so there was a, just a long history of cases of, of workplace violence by patients against staff. Uh, sometimes patients would specifically attack a staffer. Sometimes they were out of control and one, two, or three staffers had to try and subdue a patient. Uh, and, and in many of those cases, that led to injuries. Sometimes, Javan, as you said, serious injuries. Uh, some of them were even more serious than when you described with 30 days out. Some people had injuries that they said they didn't recover from for three, four, six months. Uh, some people were, were permanently uh, injured to a certain extent. Uh, and, and so we're, we're dealing with you know, broken ribs, uh, uh, inability to walk because of a twisted ankle, 
concussions, several, I, I believe. Yes. Uh, this one instance that you're referring to where a patient leapt over the nurse's uh, desk and stabbed them with a scissor that was on the desk in the face and on the neck, uh, people with dislocated or injured shoulders. Uh, so, so the employee exposure OSHA was able to demonstrate through these allegations of this history at the workplace. Uh, the next question is, is, is patient violence likely to lead to serious harm? And I, and I think that OSHA made uh, an evidentiary case showing that. So, so the next question that we arrive at is, are there feasible means of abatement that are, are recognized by the industry? Uh, and, and in this case, uh, the employer, Suncoast, pointed to some of the steps it took to abate the general risk of violence in the workplace against employees by patients. That's right. Suncoast uh, discussed how they have a workplace violence prevention plan. They have training, post-incident briefings. They have a number of different measures that they already have in place and policies uh, to address workplace violence, but the uh, administrative law judge in his decision went through each of these measures and explained in detail how each of them were inadequate to address the hazard of workplace violence. So, so for example, the, the first item on our list, the um, the workplace violence prevention plan and, you know, internal policies for workplace violence, the ALJ uh, reviewed those documents and explained that these documents did not actually list uh, the elements of this workplace violence prevention program and employees were not aware of them and the documentation was inadequate. It was often high level and short and generic. Um, another example is uh, while Suncoast explained that employees are invited to committee meetings uh, to participate uh, and weigh in on safety issues. Uh, the ALJ, after uh, listening to testimony from employees, uh, pointed out that almost uh, all the employees were not aware that they could participate in these meetings and that their input is not uh, was not sought after by Suncoast. And uh, another example is uh, the uh, facility they have code, what they call code gray procedures for escalating incidents um, in the workplace. But the ALJ concluded that, again, the, the employees uh, did not use this in practice. And so the overall picture that the ALJ uh, described was, in his opinion was that there was often a disconnect between what Suncoast said, its measures uh, that it has in place um, and its policies that it implements versus what in real life actually occurs and what the employees say actually happens in the workplace. Yeah, I think that's right, Javanay. As I read this opinion, 171 page opinion, I should point out again, uh, I was surprised when you look at OSHA's allegations and the evidence that they presented in this 12-day trial, that there were a lot of employees that they brought on to testify who said, I wasn't really familiar with the training materials. I, if there was a workplace prevention plan, they were unable to recite any elements of it. So it's not just that the judge said that the workplace prevention plan was inadequate, but, but employees testified that they didn't really know much about it. Uh, that they, as you pointed out, I think it was a great point that you know they, the Suncoast said, well, we held uh, safety meetings uh, relating to incidents, post-incident briefings, and employees were never told about the meetings. Nobody showed up. Nobody was invited. They didn't even know they could come. 
this is a gap uh, that that's not only being alleged by OSHA, but that they put on, I think, a, a good good body of evidence about that uh, the gap between what management uh, has has testified are their practices and what employees have experienced every day as actual practices. Uh, you pointed out the code gray and calling 911 is another one where they, there's a policy that they should call 911, but employees testified that they just, uh, nobody responded. If you called code gray, supervisors would watch and see if it was self-resolved. They wouldn't take action quickly enough. Uh, same with calling 911. One supervisor said, no, I can't call 911 uh, right now. And 10, 10 or 30 minutes went by before they called 911 and then responders came 10 minutes after that. Uh, during that whole 40 minutes, this uh, patient was engaging in violent conduct. Uh, so, so the gap between what employees testified to and what management testified to is one of the larger gaps that I've seen when reading an opinion uh, in a, in a you know, multi-day trial where, where you, you would think that the employer had plenty of time to prepare and put on the best evidentiary case it could. Right. Right. And I think if, a, you know, an employer can have these internal policies, but if the employees aren't aware of them and they're not um, they're it's not implemented in the workplace, then the policies are not as useful. Well, that's a good point. And I, but I think the other point is that the employer had a, a plenty of time to put on evidence, to prepare its evidence and to put on evidence. And this is, there's just such a gap between the evidence they put on and the evidence social put on that I think it didn't show very well for the employer. And I think that was a bad approach to how to present their case. Speaking of evidence, there's a strange twist to this case and it deals with the video camera uh, footage. So, so the inspector never really asked for video footage during her onsite inspection. She never asked for it for, for months afterwards. Uh, so she let months go by. She never told them that she wanted them to preserve any any documents. She never told them she wanted to preserve the videographic evidence. And then months later, she asks for it. Uh, to be sure, I think that the better approach for Suncoast would have been to produce everything they had. But they they objected. They did not produce. There was a, the necessity for a motion to compel videos, which I think is mm-hmm. a, a very... Um, it's a calculated approach, I'm sure, but I, I think it's one that I'd really have to understand why Suncoast took it to the extent that they were subjected to a motion to compel to produce those videos and then explain why they hadn't produced it under standard rules of, of discovery of information. Uh, so I, I I'm, without knowing more, don't understand their decision there. Uh, so then there was a motion to compel and an evidentiary hearing and a, a compel hearing uh, which where, where they had to present uh, cause for not producing earlier. Uh, when they finally produced under an order to compel, they, they produced six videos. But I think that there were at least twice that many incidents of violence that had been alleged as part of the case. And there were many videos that were simply missing. As you noted, this is recorded, the video feed goes to a hard drive, the hard drive stores it, and then uh, continues to re-record over it in a loop. Uh, over every 30 days. So data is automatically being lost. It's not like they deliberately destroyed it. On the other hand, OSHA complained, you don't have to deliberately destroy it to, to engage in misconduct with the duty to preserve evidence. You have to take affirmative measures to arrest automatic destruction. And you didn't. Uh, so you, you should have pulled those videos out from the automatic rewriting process. You should have recorded them to a DVD, for example. 
the ALJ heard Suncoast, they actually held off on, on ruling on this uh, as far as whether or not the, the destruction of these videos was sanctionable until the, the trial and then they ruled on it. Having heard all evidence, they concluded that this was uh, unexcusable, uh, per, uh, permissive destruction. And so they, there, there's serious sanctions for allowing evidence of this value to be destroyed. And what, I think probably the most important one is that inferences that evidence could have clarified will now be uh, taken by the court in the light most favorable to the party who sought that evidence. So in this particular case, what that means in plain English is if OSHA wanted the videos to show, for example, that means of abatement were available that weren't used, then they could say, well, judge, that's what we wanted to prove and there's no videos. They were destroyed. And so we, we want an inference that reasonable means of abatement were available that weren't used in that particular case. And the judge will, because of the force of that sanction, will grant that inference. So every element of defense quickly gets eroded away once you have that sanction hanging over your head, which is why I really don't understand uh, the strategy without knowing more uh, by, by Suncoast. But that, that penalty seems to have worked against Suncoast all through the administrative law judge's decision and the four elements of the general duty clause. In addition, of course, there is this uh, idea that the judge can issue sanctions fees, uh, attorney's fees for, for the costs of having to go through a motion to compel in the first place. Uh, but, the, but the judge basically opined that at the very least, at the moment that there was a notice of investigation, there was a duty to preserve and OSHA didn't need to notify you of its duty to preserve. Uh, and that duty could have gone back as far as the time of the initial hazard alert letter. I would argue that by the time there was a notice of investigation, that certainly is a good point at which it's unequivocal that the employer should know he has a, a duty to, uh, to preserve evidence. So, so that's so. So, as a consequence, the administrative law judge ruled that the employer, Suncoast, had not taken sufficient measures to to protect the employer uh, employees from workplace violence. And he noted at least eight uh, abatement measures that he thought would constitute adequate practices that he didn't see evidence Suncoast had adequately engaged in. Some of them I'm not so sure I, I think are meaningful or will have a meaningful reduction effect on workplace violence, but he said that an employer should develop a, a written workplace violence plan that, that they, in this particular case, Suncoast should have redesigned the nurses' stations so that patients can't get over the desks or around uh, to attack nurses. Uh, and also the intake station where patients first come in, often brought in by law enforcement officials, should have had more protective uh, barriers uh, that there should be a 911 practice where where staff are known told that they can call 911 immediately. Uh, that there should be uh, a specific staffer assigned to monitor patients for aggressive behavior or violence. Uh, that there should be post incident training and information should be exchanged with shift to shift all employees about an employee who has demonstrated violent tendencies or aggressive behavior or threats of violence. Uh, and those are the elements that, that the judge noted in a list of abatement efforts that he would have liked to have seen at Suncoast and saw inadequate approaches to. And so, so uh, upheld the citation by OSHA. So with that said, that's the proof problem that OSHA had and they were able to make it 
uh, for uh, even under the general duty clause for a violation of the general duty clause where they believed that the employer had, had taken inadequate measures to protect employees from exposure to workplace violence. Uh, and that was under the general duty clause. But as uh, we said at the beginning, there's also an initiative, both at the agency as well. It's well, it's on the regulatory agenda, uh, as well as on Capitol Hill, there have been two hearings, one in February of 2019 with respect to uh, workplace violence in the healthcare industry specifically. And then again, uh, this year, I think within the past month, uh, the House passed H.R. 1195, Javane? That's right. So um, Congress is considering H.R. Yeah, 1195. Uh, the House recently passed this legislation, um, and it is now in the Senate before the Committee on Health, Education, and Labor and Pensions. And so it's uh, the committee is now uh, reviewing the legislation. Um, the the legislation uh, I believe we've uh, this was introduced before, but it's uh, it requires that OSHA um, if this were to pass by the Senate and become law, it would mandate that that OSHA issue an interim standard on workplace violence within one year, and that would the the uh, the standard would essentially require employers and healthcare and social services sectors to develop their own workplace violence prevention plan and there are some specifications for what the plan should include in accordance with OSHA guidelines um, and there would be a brief uh, 30 minute uh, 30 day comment period for that um, then following the interim standard, OSHA would then need to actually issue a proposed rule a proposed standard uh, within two years. Yeah, and I've read that bill. Uh, well, actually, Congress asked me to come in and testify on the uh, the bill from two years ago, 2019. And interestingly, one of the other witnesses at that congressional hearing was one of the expert witnesses in this case involving Suncoast. So OSHA brought in two expert witnesses, and one of them uh, was, was a witness at this congressional hearing. Um, the bill essentially call for employers to conduct a hazard assessment of their workplace, identify measures that can be taken, develop a workplace plan, the workplace, uh, the development of the workplace uh, violence protection plan or prevention plan should solicit employee input. And uh, then there should be a, a continuous uh, improvement element to the plan where uh, incidents are reviewed and, and there's an exchange of information between management and employees. Uh, so, so now, as you say, this, this uh, is going to the Senate, and if passed, OSHA will be compelled to develop an interim standard and then a final standard within one and two years, respectively. So what should employers do? Well, we've got a couple of minutes left for the program. Uh, and then, by the way, for those of you who want to stick around, we'll turn off the recordings and we'll do a special section called Off the Record, uh, where you can type in questions in the question and answer box about any issue about uh, workplace safety and health law, and we'll try and answer the, uh, two or three of them for a few minutes longer off the record, off the recording, won't be on the podcast or, or the uh, video as well. So what should employers do? Well, I think to begin with, it's imperative for employers to develop a workplace violence prevention program if the nature of the work is one where workplace violence is predictable or foreseeable reasonably based on the industry, the geography, the, uh, the history of the particular workplace or, or the history in the industry for the potential for workplace violence. And if so, then to develop a workplace violence prevention program. I certainly believe there are security experts that can be brought in to help develop that plan and to examine the work sites to see what uh, measures might be physically, physical measures can be implemented as, 
as uh, uh, engineering controls, so to speak. Uh, and, and then to, in the aftermath of uh, workplace violence incidents, to perform incident investigations and to bring in, make sure employees are notified uh, and, and bring in uh, employee input into how to develop lessons learned and what uh, next steps or additional abatement actions or corrective actions can be implemented. The other thing I'd say is uh, the, the idea that uh, there might be an incident investigation in the context of workplace violence is, is not going to prevent that incident of workplace violence. So I think it's also important for employers to be studied on incidents that are taking place at other workplaces uh, in their industry or in their neighborhood and to try and develop an incident investigation or a lessons learned plan or process based on those other incidences at other workplaces as well. Uh, and I think one of the gaps at uh, Suncoast that was alleged was a communication gap between uh, what facts some employees or supervisors had about a particular patient that weren't transmitted to other workers who might have been exposed to that patient. So if a patient had made a threat uh, or was behaving erratically or in a menacing or, or a aggressive way in shift one and then shift two employees came on, there was an allegation that there was poor transmission of information. Or if the uh, patient was transferred to another wing, that employees at that wing were not being informed adequately of risks associated with those patients. Uh, so that communication system has to be set up so that it's robust and as perfect as possible so that risks are transmitted quickly. Uh, finally, this, this odd chapter, which I think was a real poor strategic decision in how to mount their case uh, uh, by Suncoast. I think that's this, this idea, first of all, starts with, as far as lessons learned for our listeners in the OSHA 3030 community, that, that a litigation hold should be placed on all relevant evidence uh, as soon as there's a, a notice of investigation. And, and evidence should be preserved. And that that, that needs to be coordinated with, uh, with capable counsel who can, can preserve that evidence. And second of all, I'd say that, that the idea that relevant documents are being uh, requested in traditional discovery by OSHA uh, is, is something that should, should, the employer should consider uh, cooperatively exchanging information in order to get to the merits at that are at dispute uh, in a case rather than uh, having to deal with emotions practice about with, with allegations of withholding evidence. Well, Javane, that's today's, uh, that's today's OSHA 3030. That was Suncoast and that was a workplace violence issue. Uh, we'll, we'll be back in another month. In the meantime, more developments can be found on LinkedIn for all of our pages. Javane Tarter has a LinkedIn page. Uh, my colleagues, Larry Halperin, David Servati, Taylor Johnson, and John Gustafson uh, have their own LinkedIn pages, as do I. Uh, the OSHA 3030 will be rebroadcast as a podcast as well as on YouTube. And we're on pretty much all of your favorite podcast apps uh, so you can catch it on the go. Uh, but the live program is the only one that has this question and answer uh, off the record that we're gonna get into in just one minute. Our next program will be on June 16th at 1 p.m. Eastern, always on a Wednesday and always at 1 p.m. Eastern. Our sister programs here at Keller and Heckman, the Tosca 3030, the Reach 3030, and the FIFRA 3030 uh, are also coming up soon. So stay tuned for uh, announcements about those. Tosca and Reach 3030s are coming up on June 9th, 2021 at 1 p.m. and 1.35 Eastern respectively. Great programs if your operations are affected by Tosca or Reach, 
make sure you tune in. Remember for all these programs, when you get an invitation, the only thing we ask, spread the word and forward it to three more people. If you've already forwarded it to three people, thank you very much, but please forward it on to three more. New members of our community are the lifeblood of keeping this program going, hopefully for years to come. Well, thank you, Javanay Nakumaram, for participating in today's OSHA 3030. And thank you all for joining us uh, for another episode. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again next month. And until then, stay safe. Mm -hmm.